Greetings and salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is Judo Chop Suey Podcast, and I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman, coming back at you once again with another episode. Um, on this episode, I'm going to continue to con- uh, the conversation with Ajax Tadahara. A, a, a lengthy and fascinating conversation that I had with him. This is going to be part three. I encourage you, if you haven't listened to part one and two, that you really should do so, so that you kind of understand the context of the flow of the conversation and such like that. So we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, what he's going to be doing you know, after his career, what he's looking to do. Uh, get his thoughts on the American Judo development model. And, you know, something what's interesting about that, there's another podcast which I've talked about on this. It's an excellent one called Tatami Talk. And one of the hosts of that podcast, Anthony, he actually took the uh, American Judo Development Model online course and he, and he gives his opinion on that. I'm not going to spoil it here. I, I think you guys should take a listen to that to that episode if you're interested in finding a little bit more about it and, and kind of get his thoughts from it. Uh, from a judo student's perspective, somebody that may want to be a coach in the future, but has been around it for a long time. He, he brings an interesting perspective. I, I've kind of debated back and forth whether or not I wanted to take the course and kind of dish it out myself, but I feel like I'd be reinventing the wheel if I did that. So I would strongly suggest you guys listen to that episode of Tatami Talk, which, by the way, that's such a great name. In hindsight, I wish I came up with something like that. So, yeah, so continuing on, we're, I'm going to be talking with Ajax about his thoughts about that. And, and a little bit more, uh, he kind of goes a little bit more detail on some of the things that he would think uh, would be ideal for USA Judo to improve upon. But before I get into any of that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have breaking news. Uh, Teddy Renner lost again. Yeah, and, and, and let me say, this is definitely going to be the last time that I bring up a loss uh a, a, you know a loss by Teddy Renner. It was breaking news that the first time he lost um in you know 10 years or whatever it was so that that winning streak and I I guess he there was a French team's championship or maybe the national championship or something along those lines. That's my understanding. So I saw the match and he lost to Joseph Terek uh, if I got that name right. And Ter Heck was the, the bronze medal winner at this year's European Open in uh, in Warsaw, Poland. And he also won gold at the European Open back in Glasgow in 2018. So this guy really isn't a slouch by any means. And on the International World Tour, uh, in, in the IJF World Tour, excuse me, he's currently ranked like, I think, 81st place in the plus 100 kilo division. So... He certainly has some international experience. It's 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 not really well. I I suppose this is an upset of sorts. But looking at Teddy Renner, I know I had made a comment. Um, I I think it was the last episode. I did. I recently saw a picture of Teddy Renner. He looked like to be in fantastic shape. Um, in this match, he did not look very sharp. And I know that I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and I'll keep saying it. Father Time is undefeated, and Teddy Renner really looked kind of slow. He, he just he didn't look like the Teddy Renner that I've been used to seeing for for so many years. He just 
I, I don't know. I mean, he, he lost via Shido, which, you know, you don't I don't ever like seeing, you know, winners or losers by Shido. But that's part of the rules and, and you know, that's the game we play. But I think at this point, I know Teddy wants to, to be and to uh, to be at the 2024 20, games which is going to be hosted in Paris I'm not sure if he's going to make it I mean he's he's taken all this time off he's prepared his body and and he look I mean god I hate to say it he kind of looks like a shell of him for of his former self so to me you know if I was him and I was in his camp and I was a, a a manager of sorts or whatever the case may be, I would start thinking, be thinking to myself, you know, wondering when is going to be the right time to let Teddy know that it could be time for him to hang him up. I mean, look, every athlete retires. Not every athlete can keep going. And I, I just think there's going to come a point sooner than later, certainly well before 2024, where they really should sit down and, and have a conversation with him and, and, and make sure that Teddy, you know, when he retires, he doesn't go out embarrassing himself. And yes, I know there are there are many people out there that compete, you know, well into the mid-30s and, and late 30s and maybe even sometimes into 40s at, at the highest levels of judo. I'm thinking specifically about Sabrina Filsmoser, but those people are rare. And I'm not sure if Teddy has the genetics or body makeup in order to extend a career well into his 30s, mid 30s, and beyond. I, I don't see how I, I don't see that happening. Not, I mean, sure he he'll he could continue to compete and win at the world tour. Um, I I certainly believe that'll happen. But you know, winning on the world tour when when you've been that guy and you've been the the, the most dominant. Uh, competitor over a 10 plus year period you know when you've been that guy and then you start having people that are ranked well in this case 81st in the world in your division beating you somebody who's five or six years younger I mean that's that's how it's gonna go it's it's like it's like an MMA it's like you know that you you want to remember fighters well, MMA or boxing, you want to remember fighters when they were great and when they were at their prime. You don't, you don't want to see BJ Penn get back into the octagon again. I, I don't want to see Chuck Liddell back in the octagon just because he just wanted one more payday or one more fight and he just couldn't let it go. Like no, nobody wants to see athletes like that. Just like I didn't want to see Michael Jordan come back playing for the Wizards. And look, I know that's all journalist talk, and I'm not call, calling myself a journalist, but you know, a lot of the you know, a lot of these talking heads on TV and radio, they talk about you know a player's legacy and stuff without without even giving consideration of what the player actually wants. But I'm just speaking as a fan, as an outside observer, somebody just on the outside looking in. That I, I, I don't want to see Teddy go out um, looking badly. I mean, I kind of think he should do what Fabio Basile seemingly does with, with his free time, which is anything but judo, whether that's that's modeling clothes or driving around fast cars and, you know, dating pretty women like Daria Bila did. You know, that's what Teddy should be doing, you know, in the twilight of his career. Those are the type of things he could be doing commercials and 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 just just. Just being a celebrity and and just using all the hard work that he's done over the past ten years to just be in the spotlight in a positive way and 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 in I don't know all that kind of stuff. That's what I do. 
I mean, he could get into movies, he can get into acting, and that's so much that he could do with his life. And and I don't think he could do that kind of stuff if he leaves this sport looking bad. So anyway, yeah, Teddy Renner lost, and I am never going to bring up a Teddy Renner uh, loss again because it's no longer news. It's, it's like, I'm just going to bring it up this one time, and, and that's really it. If he loses again in the future... You know, I'm not going to make a special note of it. I'm just going to say, hey, you know, this person beat Teddy Renair. You know, moving along, this person won gold or whatever the case may be. Now, hopefully, I can be talking about who won gold and, and, and what division and things like that because the IJF has confirmed the Grand Slam in Budapest is going to be a go. And it's going to be taking, it's going to be taking place, like I just said, in Budapest, Hungary. Um, on October 23rd through 26th. And unfortunately, I'm not going to be watching a single match because I'm going to be going on vacation again. I tell you what, all this podcast money rolling in, I'm living large. Did you guys see my Instagram and my new car? There you go. No more putting around in my 2008 Mazda 3 that had like 245,000 miles. I upgraded. It's nice to do so. Uh, where was I going with that? Anyway. Oh, yes, I, I'll be on vacation. You know what? Maybe I will be able to watch some of that because um, because of the time zone difference. They start their matches at 9 in the morning. Over there, it'll probably be like, I don't know, a six-hour difference. So, yeah, I'll be setting my alarm at 3 in the morning to watch some judo. How about that? So, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to watching it. I hope the major countries show up for this. I would hate for after all this time, Japan doesn't show up. I would hate it if France didn't show up. I mean, the real players, you you know, I'm not talking about the B team either. I want to see Hufumi Abe. I, and I, I want to see Teddy Renner. You know, I want to see Clarissa Bignenu. I want to see the Brazilian team. I hope these countries go there. And I, I could probably find out who's showing up and who's not. But uh, I don't feel like clicking through all the links in uh, the IJF.org right now. So, um you guys can do that. You guys are smart enough to figure that out. All right, so we're going to move on to part three of my interview with Ajax Tadehara. As I mentioned earlier in this section, we're going to talk about what's next for him in his career. And we're just going to talk a little bit more about um, the relatively recent American judo development model and get his thoughts on that. So without any further delay, here's Ajax. So now that you've you've had this this experience, this lengthy career, this experience, and now that you're retired, do you have any immediate plans, um, or you know, but or maybe maybe not immediate, but but future plans um, with staying involved in the sport in some way? You're going to switch over to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I mean, do do you have any 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 aspirations of of being a coach yourself or? Or anything along those lines? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I've got a, a couple things, Bernie. So, the first thing is we are, you know, in the next couple of weeks, we're moving back to my hometown, trying to help my dad recover from his, from his illness. And so, that's kind of a, a question mark. We don't know how long we're going to be there. We don't know quite what we're going to do while we're there. You know, what jobs are we going to get? Where are those going to take us? You know. Right. Um, so that's kind of a big question mark. I have thought very heavily about trying to get into MMA. <clears throat> I've thought heavily about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Sambo. Mm-hmm. Quite like I said in the last last time we talked, um, if I if I just won the lottery, this you know, 
this Wednesday, I would become, I would make every move to come back to IJF judo and still try and qualify the Olympics. You know, really my issue is none of these are viable options until I get my finances sorted out. Right. So the, the first and foremost thing is I've got to pay off a lot of high interest debt. And after that, I've then got to weigh how old am I? What are my injuries looking like? Am I still motivated? Do I still think I can do it as the situation changed politically or structurally? You know what I mean? I, I got to reevaluate all that stuff. And, and so unfortunately, I mean, I don't know, long-term, I would like to open my own judo club. I'd really like to renovate kind of the American um, standard for what judo clubs are. I think interesting. Okay. Yeah. I think there can just be a good mix between your standard Brazilian jiu-jitsu and your standard judo um, in the United States. You know what I mean? If you just walk into two standard like clubs, you know, oh, I've just said like a local judo club. Oh, this is the BJJ place down the street. You know, it's not like a top team or anything. It's not some crazy high performance gym. There's just a huge disconnect in how they're run, the professionalism, the, the marketing, the, just everything, you know what I mean? Everything, like I said, even just the atmosphere, the social culture in the clubs, the accommodations towards everybody rather than just high performance athletes, yeah. the accommodations towards adults versus children. There's just such an enormous disconnect. And I, I would like to, I guess, like be a, a leader or a model of, and maybe I'll fail. Maybe it's not working the way I think it's, the way I want it to work, maybe it's not going that way right now because it doesn't actually work, you know, but as far as I know, like most judo clubs I've ever been to or seen or heard from, um, I run, I ran a, a certain way and it's really kind of put us behind as far as, like I said, everything, marketing, finances, professionalism, enjoyment of judo. You know what I mean? Most yeah, judo we have in the U S is just like a, we're here for the kids to go to junior nationals. We're here to watch these kids brawl. And yeah. if you're an adult, you know, you end up like you're a showdown and you want to get your need on and you end up like babysitting kids two to three nights a week and maybe working on your own judo one to two nights a week, if you're lucky. And that's on top of working a full-time job and taking care of kids of your own or whatever. And so it just doesn't, it's not a long-term feasible. And then you have a bunch of kids in junior high, high school or college stop doing judo and they get into football and soccer and rock climbing and they get into the social sports. And, um, so I'd like, I long-term I'd like to open my own club. And like I said, maybe be kind of a pioneer or a, a leader and look, here's a feasible long-term model that keeps all age groups, all points of interest in judo available. And it can be a feasible career to, to be like, Oh, I want to open a judo club and make money. Because currently it's like, no, you're never going to make money doing judo. You got to get a degree. You got to work a full-time job. And then you could be like a community club, you know, three, four, five nights a week on top of your full-time job. And you got to give back to the community. And then you get, so now you're getting people that aren't getting paid to teach judo. Their interest is low. They're, they're worn out. They're tired. They're strung out. And really the, the higher tier judo teachers or the higher talented performers have usually just stepped away from the mat and uh, work jobs and do family stuff instead of doing judo. Cause you give everything to judo and then you don't get much back, you know? And so if you can find a business model that can pay teachers appropriately, you'll get 
professional teachers. You know what I mean? You'll, you'll get more appropriate teachers and a more appropriate level of standard for, like I said, just professionalism in general. Yeah. I, boy, I mean, I really, (laughs) really everything you just said there is, is a big reason why I started the podcast. uh, Gosh, getting on almost four years. Um, Yeah. I, I think, I, I've always made the case that that judo is is in general is losing out on a market share um, that they're not even trying to to target. And, and I yeah. think, I think the eighteen to thirty year old market share is is completely being dominated by Brazilian jiu jitsu, and oh, yeah. and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just. It's just I know because I because I do both, and I know that most people that I train with have the toughness to hack it in judo, mm. but but they they don't do it well. A lot of times they don't do it because they're they're prepping for their own tournaments and things like that. But but of the people that you might be able to get, they I I think. I think the model of, of trying to find the next elite athlete or, or something that I've seen a lot of uh, – uh, that I have seen in judo clubs, um, you know, where, where it's very kid, kid-centric. And you, you need the kids, and I'm not saying you don't, but, but I, I, think, I, I think by adults being so low on that totem pole of, of targeting – that demographic, I, I, I think it causes a lot of problems for growth in judo. Um, Cause you don't, you don't, you end up not having enough people to teach it in the long run. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, I completely, I, I, I agree with a lot of the things that you're saying and that, that you've seen there. And I, I, I don't have the answers, but, but, uh, but certainly, you know, at least, at least, discussing it and, and making it known out there. Hey, there's a lot of people like us that, uh, you know, want to keep doing judo because it's a great activity and, and it's, it's great for, uh, you know, staying in shape and, you know, in learning things and, and, you know, getting better at a, at a skill that's uh, worth learning. Uh, that's, yeah. kind of my, that's kind of my opinion on it. You know, it's really funny. I read this the other day and I didn't even read the whole article. I'll be honest. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a weird, like, Oh, I'm a fan, but I get annoyed easily with my experiences. I'm like, Oh, this is kind of a hot subject for me. I got to take a step back emotionally. Right. Yeah. But I read, read a thing about Ben Askren and he was saying, you know, in my MMA career, I wish I had uh, some different BJJ coaches that I wish I'd capitalized on my BJJ skills a little more in certain areas. And then he went on to say like, there's this huge problem with, with American BJJ, if you walk into an average club, you know, a teacher is going to show a random technique of the week and you're going to drill it a bunch. And then you're going to do, you know, like 10, five minute rounds where, where the athletes just naturally go back to whatever they're good at. They don't, you know, like if you show them a front headlock, people that do a front headlock are going to work on that. But people that don't do a front headlock aren't going to really work on it once they get into sparring right and he's like if you do 10 five minute rounds the late he said the late or something like the laziness of people come out and and they just go back to their natural habits of doing what they're good at and he's like if i was a coach if i was running a high performance bjj school if i was going to open a high performance wrestling club and i was teaching front headlock 
I'd drill it. I'd make, I'd put somebody in a front headlock like a hundred times this practice, 200 times this practice. I want them to be good at front headlock. I want them to be good at defending front headlock. I want them to be good at countering the defensive front headlock. And those are really great aspects from a high performance perspective. But I, you know, I'm kind of, I'm reading this article and I'm like, dude, that's what BJJ does the best in America. That's why you have as many people as you do paying as much money as they do yeah. to show up every week and do this. I'm like, if you just ran high performance BJJ schools, it would, it would be where judo is now. You just have a bunch of monsters on the mat, eating each other alive, high injury rate, some occasional champions from this club or that club. And then they would all fade off soon because of injuries. It's not sustainable. You know, I'm like, especially with judo, you know, wrestling, really the culture in the U S is, is you want to be a champion. It's a winning culture. And that's, I totally get it. And that's great. Like right. I'm not knocking that BJJ generally is a winning culture, but there's a ton of people that are like, Hey, I've never even done any fighting sport before. And I'm just kind of here to push my boundaries, win or lose. I'm just here to experience something new, get a little realistic self-defense. You got to have viable practice options for people like that. And it's the same with judo. If you're not practicing kata, if you're not practicing newaza, grip fighting, throwing drills, actual rondori, you know, a couple of interactive games that kind of show like, hey, you know, this is kind of how you can play around with getting out of pins that people usually overlook. You know what I mean? Right. If you don't have a well-rounded model, then you're only going to get a very select few people in any given judo club. And the clubs become, like I said, less sustainable. And then there's less clubs opening because there's less sustainability. And the clubs you do have are – and then you only have a tournament that's 10 hours away. So less people are showing up to tournaments because who can drive 20 hours on a Saturday and fight? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, right. And so I was thinking about – I was like, you know – on the one hand, he's right from a high performance perspective. He's super right. But to be honest, most of the pros drill like that anyways, right? Like the, the Donaher death squad, they drill starting in, in some guys got your back in BJJ, you know, some guys got your back and one of your arms tied up, right? They drill the competitive situations and they have a competitive performance team. It makes sense. But if you're, if you're going to have a large base of, practitioners and a deep culture of people who are willing to donate money to the national team, or they're willing to show up and take falls for your one champion of the club, or they're just playing, they're going to do the fundraisers or they're just playing going to end up coming and teaching kids and give back to us where you've got to have more sustainable options than just making them drill front headlock till they throw up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, man, that's what BJJ has done right in the U S now, if you want to get some high performers, they should train. They should not. They should use a different training model than ten five-minute rounds. You know, sure, I agree with that. But I'm like, man, from a long-term perspective, couldn't be further from from the truth. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, that's, I, just, I, that's a that's a champion talking about what he would do to make championship. <laughs> you know what I mean? Championship results, and it's like, ah, that view is holds little merit in the general realm of the rest of the community so in light of um in, in light of you you know wanting to open up a, a judo club one day and, and maybe you know maybe kind of kind of do things a little bit differently what was your opinion on the um the american judo development model that was kind of talked about maybe about a month or two ago i, I know it's, it's been this thing that's been 
working on and, and you know, they, yeah. they finally had something to present. What was your uh, uh, initial impressions on that? So very, just very, very early stages initially. Great. Phenomenal. Fantastic. It is structure we need in the United States as a broad generalized spectrum. There's no real standardized guidelines. There's no real like, Hey, if you, if you know good judo and you want to put a club together, but you don't know how to run a business, you don't know how, you don't know how to teach non-competitive judo. Like I said, a lot of athletes want to retire and they still want to teach, but they can only teach Bangor Rondori competition results. Yeah. Having an, a generalized basic outline is the perfect way to do that. And most countries that I've seen already do that. And this is stuff like I met some people from like the Netherlands when I was at Kodokan, you know, and then like 2009, like almost 10, 11 years ago. And they're like, yeah, we have the Dutch judo bond and uh, they give us like a standardized guideline. So if you're running a, a green belt, you know, 10 year old green belts class or something, and they're all, they're all at the same level, you know, this is like, they should basically know this. And, and it's easy to work when, once you work on this, then you work on that, you know, and then you start doing combinations and then you start doing counter attacks and, and they've got just a, a general flow of ABC, which um, judo has always had, right? Like eight directions of attack and, and defense. We have all those things in judo, but to put it together in a written structure is really good. And I think it's really necessary. Yeah. Leading into the, to, into the actual having them do this and, and what they published and I don't know, charging $30 for it or whatever and who would sit on the board. And like I said, the members involved, not naming names, but just the names I read on the list. Um, I got to be completely honest. I'm, I'm, it hit me really flat and I was very unimpressed and almost actually just plain disappointed and, and or angry um, at the situation we face, like I said, broad spectrum, just as a country mm -hmm. trying to organize this. Um, the leadership seemed really, really seemed um, soft and, on that particular project to me from what I saw. It didn't seem like there was a lot of great leadership. The, the program, what I actually saw, you know, cause they're not, they don't give you the whole thing unless you pay 30 bucks. I'll be honest. I didn't pay the $30. So I didn't look at the whole detailed program. So maybe I'm getting, a, maybe I'm getting the wrong impression and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I feel like it's honestly, it's my, my major was sports management in physical education. So I got a bachelor's in that and I'm, I'm not even joking you. I feel like that's a model I could have put out for my like end of semester project that I probably could have hustled through during spring break under the gun, knowing it was due in like, you know, the next eight hours. Yeah. Right. Like right. the quality, the quality was just, I, I'm not even, I can't even think of anything else other than literally the, the kids I went to college with could have busted this out as their semester project. And they took them and that somehow took these organizations two years to put this on paper. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I was like two years, it just seems egregious that it took two years to come up with that. I couldn't believe it. You know what I mean? Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm nitpicky. I have high standards. That's a competitive athlete in me. And I know that. So I try not to be overly critical, but there's, I mean, still it was just, it was too much to say this took us two years and now we're presenting it. 
and we're going to do a live meeting and only one or two of the people that were on the project are actually going to be at that meeting to answer questions. The rest of us aren't even going to be there. We don't, it just shows, like I said, a lack of leadership, a lack of interest. And like I said, I don't, I don't understand all the people on that board were old school, long-term, very knowledgeable judo people. I don't understand how it took them two years to do that other than, well, we don't get paid to do this. So we only meet up every three to six months on a, you know, we all have different lives and we're not, this isn't really our main thing in life. So we just didn't put that much priority into it, I guess. And, and like I said, that's, that's, it was disappointing for sure. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, I, I don't, I'm definitely not going to throw, you know, any specific people under the bus. I, I, you know, I appreciate the work that, uh, some people did, but I, I did also notice um, when I was on that call, I was surprised to see that certain people were not there. I mean, if this is, if this is, if you, if I was part of a project where I, I came up with something like this, and this is, this is what I'm going to demonstrate to my team or, or really the rest of the rest of the country, I, I, I would probably show up to, you know, to, to the meetings, uh, uh, you, you know, to answer questions and things like yeah. that. I mean, <laughs> I, I was, I was surprised at, at, at some of the people that were, that were not there, uh, quite frankly, I, I don't know, yeah. you know, you know, I could understand maybe one or two could be busy or something else going on, but, but I don't know. I, I feel like even, even then, unless it's an emergency, you can, you can take an hour out of your day to, um, to kind of show up in the call and, 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 you know, pump, pump up the work that you've done on it. Really? I mean, I, I don't, I don't see why that couldn't have, couldn't have happened, but you know, who knows? I mean, everybody's got their own situations and such. Um, yeah. You know, so, so what about, um, cause we were discussing this via email. Uh, you wanted to kind of cover some of the, some of the things that you may think, um, other things that, that, that maybe judo in the United States struggles with that maybe other sports do not. And this was the part where we're talking about American sports powerhouse. And there's got to be a reason why USA judo struggles so much to perform. What, what did you want to kind of cover uh, with regards to that? And you, you, I know you, you were specific about what you wanted to cover with, with USA Judo, and I wanted to make sure that I can transition into that. Uh. Sure, and, um, and this, this is, that's a perfect transition from the Judo development model. Yeah. Um, so, so the first thing, I'll, I'll say this, over, like I said, over my years of making international friends, watching the dynamics and the politics of other teams and other organizations from different countries, from different areas of the world, and you were talking, you said, you know, we're, we're a powerhouse in most sports. It's, you know, it's, we just tend to dominate with whatever we really put effort and, and focus towards. And then judo just seems to be just behind the ball in every, every possible manner with a few exceptions, a few, you know, a few superstars we have put out for sure. Right. Um, and so I, I, I read this, um, this kind of this, I don't know, I guess it was like a study or an article or just whatever it was. But basically, the United Kingdom and the, the British squad for judo, my understanding was they were not lottery funded. They, they didn't have, like, government funding, which the USA also doesn't have. 
most other countries have government funding for their Olympic sports. And so there's a much just broader base and, and set amounts that each sport gets and it's easier to work with a budget. USA always makes a budget and USA judo and we always blow it because we never quite know how much we're getting any given year, whatever. So this, anyways, this studies, so they, they became lottery funded suddenly. No, what do you mean by lottery funded? So basically like, like in the USA, you win the, you, you play Powerball and Powerball to, you know, to help with the taxes and the gambling laws and all the ins and outs of that. They'll write their, they fund like public school districts, you know, 10, 10% of Colorado lottery goes to our public schools for new computers, new, right? So right. that's a lottery funded program. And so, so, so the UK athletes started showing up and, and they, uh, their, their, their team t-shirts and, and their, their gear started saying, you know, lottery funded UK lottery and stuff. And you see it on like some of the Brazilians, they have lotto on all of their shirts. It just says lotto. That's Brazilian lottery, right? So you're lottery funded now, basically, or, you know, you could say government funded, however you want. I don't know the ins and outs of that technicality, but basically, so they, they got funded at some point more than they had been. And they, you know, the initial like conclusion of the, of the whole study was we saw this much rise in performance across like all sports on average, some sports had a higher rise in performance. Some had a lower rise, but on average, the general performance of lottery funded sports went up and they went around and asked two or three different members from each organization, judo, taekwondo, swimming, right? Whatever, whatever sports. And they said, in your opinion, what was the difference from three years ago until now? Why is your team doing better than before? Why are, why is your performance so much higher? Is it the new coaches you got? Is it the new board of directors? Is it the new CEO? And they said unanimously, all sports, all positions within the sport, all said that money was the, was the changing factor. And I wholeheartedly believe it's at least the largest single factor of USA Judo. Some people say, oh, it's the mentality of the athletes. Some say it's the culture. Some say it's the grit. Some say it's the money. I personally believe it's, it's the money. We don't have centralized training. We don't have athletes that are making money doing this. We have athletes that are going to school, you know, like Chantel writes a full-time nurse. She works three 12 hour days in any given week, or maybe, maybe it's four tens. I don't remember. I think she said it. She's on three twelves. And that was a couple of years ago when we talked, but still she was, we're coming into the world championship. She's on three 12 hour days. You can't train a lick during a 12-hour day as a no. registered nurse, right? So three days are eaten up in your week. You got one or two days where all you can do is train, and that's great. Your day is totally open to train. But then anytime you come to a tournament, you work three days, you fly out the next day, you cut weight for a day, and then you fight, and then you fly home, and then you got to do your next three-hour days, and then you get one or two weeks where you can now train again, right? Like it's not a feasible model for high performance. You're not getting enough training in. You're not getting enough recovery in because even if you say, well, Missing three days of training is not a big deal, but those are three days you're supposed to be recovering. So you're not getting injured. You're not too stressed out. Your body's peak performance, right? And she's not alone. I was laying brick for 40 hours a week, right? Manual, manual labor, 40 hours a week, and then showing up to practice with rocks in my hair. Yeah, and there's right. a bunch of other athletes. There's a bunch of athletes that we all have to have jobs. Most of us went to school, got degrees. You know, we're not professional athletes. 
we're semi-pro at best. And that's just the athletes. Now we're talking about coaching earlier. Coaches that don't get paid appropriately aren't going to be that high level coaches because they have to run a professional life where they make money for themselves, their wives, their kids, their families, right? Their mortgage. And then on top of that, you want to ask them to do a top tier world-class performance professional coaching job. You know what I mean? Like where yeah, are they going to find the extra time to do much. that? That's way. Yeah. yeah it's I, too I much. So, and then we haven't even gotten into sports psychologists, nutritionists, strength and conditioning coaches, right? We don't have any of those things on 90% of our trips. We'll get a therapist and maybe a psychologist or maybe a nutritionist on two to three trips a year. Yeah. Right. And I've been to multiple tournaments with no coaches at all. We have to, the athletes show up to the tournament and we go to the registration and make sure our name's in the draw. We go to the registration and make sure they got our name in the, in the pool and our fees are paid and our, we check ourselves into the hotel. You know what I mean? That's like all the coaches are supposed to do that for you. And half the tournaments I went to, we didn't even have coaches do that. And then, like I said, when you do have a coach, maybe you haven't talked to him in six months or maybe it's only been a week. You don't know, you know? All of those problems start with you don't have money, so you don't have a professional standard of care. That's really it. Do That's you at least think, the starting point. Do you think, and I could be way off base on this, but do you think that there would be value in just, for, for lack of a better term, blowing the whole thing up and, and just laying down a foundation and just kind of slowly build from there? Because it, it doesn't... Because it's, it sounds to me that the system in place is just not – there's just never going to be enough money to adequately support any athletes. And it seems that whether you're talking about juniors or cadets or seniors, that they're all going to run into the same problems. And, and I, don't know, I don't know what the solution is to fix that, getting in more money. I, I mean, certainly – that would certainly help, but how you go about that? I know there's laws involved with with getting funding from lotteries mm-hmm. and things like that. I do you think there would be any value in just just starting all over from the entire program from scratch and you know, or or maybe you know, it's do we just need some minor tweaking um, to improve things? Yeah, and. So real quick, I, I did want to throw in, you said previously, like last time we talked, you said, you know, I don't personally blame any athletes for right. a lot of this. So as a broad generalization, if I'm just looking at the organization as a whole, I, I feel the same. I, I cannot blame any given coach, right, for this. Because again, they're not getting paid what they're, what they're owed to give a performance like that. If you're not right. going to pay for a world-class performance, you're probably not going to get one. Even if you do pay for it, half the time, these countries that have professional coaches don't put out those numbers. So I will say, just broadly speaking, I get it, and I don't blame anyone who's like, hey, there's more work, but I got to clock out, man. I put in my eight hours today. I got to go home. You know what I mean? I'm not paid to do more than eight hours. I'm not doing more than eight hours. Right. I, don't, I can't blame you. You know what I mean? I get it. On the other hand um, – Everybody, everybody just gets shafted in the long run. The administration, the athletes, everybody in between. So, so just laying that out there. On the other – now, the reverse side of the coin, 
there are certain individuals in the organization that I have no problems with and certain ones that I do. And the unfortunate thing is they all kind of use the same logic for what I would consider a poor performance. They use the same like excuses and the same, well, you know, this is why. Um, but there, there are certain people that, you know, like just directly lied about the situation or about their part in the situation. And that's what bothers me. And that's where I am with you. Where, not necessarily with you because you didn't say this is your opinion. You just asked. Mm -hmm. I, I believe an extreme overhaul is prudent. I do. I you think do. there okay. needs to be a huge, a huge wipe of the slate. Not necessarily everything. Not just like, but I mean, th this is the general notion I've got and what I've seen. And so again, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, Keith Bryant has not done a bad job. And I agree with some of the things that he's worked hard to do. He's been very transparent with funding and, and, and how the organization works and why it works this way, which was a huge issue from our last leadership previous mm -hmm. to Keith Bryant. And, and I'm with him on that. I'm happy. And to be honest, like I said, the idea of the American judo development model and the, the fundamental like baseline of it is phenomenal. And so the general thing is, well, this is a step in the right direction. It's better than it was. It's, and I'm okay with all, I'm like, oh yeah, that's really good. Unfortunately, our situation is so extreme. And this is for both athletic performance and the baseline foundation of the sport as a whole. Like we talked about, you know, just your general population, practitioners, you know, your, your community and just your general um, enthusiasts for judo that aren't high performance athletes. This is right. for, for both worlds, you know, kids, adults, and everyone in between teachers and everything. Um, that, you know, a, a step in the right direction. We're, we're at such a poor place as a country that a step in the right direction means almost nothing. It's going from 50% to 51%, you know, going from 45 to 50. That's nothing. Right. We still got half of the race to make up. We got everything. So yeah, you need, you need almost just a total overhaul. And one of the biggest issues that I've, you know, like I said, I, it sucks. Keith, Keith picked up a really hot potato. Um, taking on usa judo the yes, position he that he's in yes so like yes, i said i did. feel for the guy yeah he's been very professional very kind i i find him very genuine and i respect that unfortunately i personally believe he needed to to be a an extreme leader he needed to be like just a hardcore like these are our performance standards and if we don't meet them somebody's getting axed there are no excuses there are you know this is what we're doing or else there are problems. You know what I mean? Like we need kind of like a serious leader, not just somebody that's like, Hey, I'm working really hard to step in the right direction. You know what I mean? Working really hard for a step in the right direction. What is that at, at, at given our current situation? You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, it's not, it's not good enough. It's not even close. Yeah. I, you it's know, just not. I've been told by people that, that, um, that Keith works very hard. And a lot of I've been told that a lot of his time is is spent dealing with a lot of the BS surrounding, you know, judo and the yeah. free organizations and things like that. I, I think I've been told that from other I've been told from other people that know him that he, they feel that a lot of his time is taken up with things that shouldn't be taken up uh, his time. 
but I don't, I don't know what those are specifically, but I, I know that somebody as, as a, at a CEO level is, is dealing with things that somebody at a CEO level shouldn't be dealing with. Um, that's, that's what I've been told of that situation. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I, I agree with you that he's been very transparent, which is a good thing because I've only heard rumors about how things were before and they did, they sounded even worse. Um, than than what I can even imagine, you know, you, they sound worse than what they are today. Today sounds like just, you, you know, heavenly compared to how things were, uh, according to some. So yeah, yeah. no, it's um, <laughs> and it's true. And I, I mean, like I said, when I lived in Colorado Springs, I worked in in the USA Judo office for for a while, six or eight months or something, and um. You know, and I and I got to see a lot of the inner workings, and it's true. He 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 does spend a lot of time dealing with crap that's not supposed to be on his plate. And on top of that, so do other people in the office. Ed Liddy, I man, I saw him take phone calls. I literally, I was in his office talking to him, you know, as a coach to athlete, and he'd have to take a phone call, and I'd be like, dude, why is he the one on this call right now? Who is this guy? What is what is going on? How can somebody else in this office not field this call? Just the whole thing. It was it was mind boggling. So it is. Keith does do that. And that's one of the commendable, right? Like if you've got a manager that won't jump in and get their hands dirty, you probably don't have a great manager. On the other hand, there's a point where you've, as a manager, you've got to delegate what tasks go where. Yeah. And you got to have to make sure that your people know what their job is. Then they can't just pass it up to you. They got to do it. And so it's kind of a, it's a little bit of both. I'm like, like I said, I, I really like him as a person. Um, and I, I'm not, I like how he's, done what he's done i just man there's got to be more you know he's got to do more or somebody does and again that's not just a personal knock i feel that way even stronger um with multiple people in that office and on the board um so it's that's that's a tough one man it's a tough one i i do think an extreme overhaul is prudent and pretty necessary yeah and a big issue too is a lot of people in the in that office and some of the people on the board are like I said, they're old school people from from a long time back, a long history with USA Judo. And on the one hand, that builds merit, that builds your resume. That says, hey, they they've seen it all, they know what's going on. On the other hand, you think, well, they're also one of the connected links to every good, bad, and ugly in the history. And maybe maybe they're part of the bad or the ugly and not part of the good, despite what you might think. You know, and so I'm like, man, at some point, some of these people got to got to go for the betterment of the organization. You know, there's a lot of like internal hires, so to speak. You know, a lot of people get these positions and I'm like, I know those people and they're friends with so-and-so. Sure. You know, sure. That wasn't y'all didn't, y'all didn't post a job and find the best candidate to get your results. You brought in a friend that needed an extra help in life or needed a side job on top of their other career. You know what I mean? I'm like, these are like, it's not really what's best for USA judo and the community. It's what's best for a couple of people at the top. You know, it's what's best for the people close to you. And I said, I'm like, I, you know, can't really go into too much more specifics. I don't really want to. No, I understood. But, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to, <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to dig. No, I know. Here, believe me. Yeah. That's that. That's not my deal. I just, just curious that that's all, you know, 
Um, yeah, I think yeah. I think my my only parting take from from a you know from a USA Judo standpoint, the American Judo development model. I I would have liked to have seen names um, involved in certain committees that I've never seen involved in a USA Judo committee before. Uh, and I think um, mm. you know just just you know sometimes you get a you 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 get a young guy that's 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 twenty five that's just just brimming with energy and and new ideas and new ways to do things that uh, you know I I'm in my mid forties and I even have to to recognize and accept that. You know, even even people twenty years younger than me, um, I may have experience in er, in certain areas, especially in my career. But but they they come up with uh, a a different point of view, and, and sometimes those those new ideas can be very refreshing and and, and very forward thinking. That that you know somebody that's been around the block a couple times, you know, um, may not have the wherewithal to to come up with such an idea, whatever whatever that idea is. You know what I mean? Yeah. For sure. Well, and I mean, just looking at it from a from pure logic, the Olympic qualification changed after 2008, changed again after 2012, changed again after 2016. The specific rule set of IJF judo has changed every one to three years since then as well. Right. right? You cannot take the approach of business as usual and expect different or better results. It does, that doesn't make, there's no sense. There's no logic to that, right? You have to do something different. You have to make adjustments. You have to keep up with the times. You have to have some new innovative, you know, if nothing else, you just have to be exceptionally on top of it, exceptionally educated of what does this rule change mean? Mm-hmm. How is that going to affect our baseline of qualified athletes, right? Which athletes does this rule set benefit and which athletes are we going to have to really work on to make sure that they're good at this, these new rules because they'll fall behind quick. Right. You, like I said, if that many changes over the course of the last 10, 15 years, and we still have a f- multiple of the same people doing the same jobs, you know what I mean? That's like you said, you need some, some, somebody fresh, innovative, new, lively, whatever. Sure. You know. Yeah. It's just, man, it's a deep rabbit hole. And it, the hits frustrating though, man, it's frustrating as an athlete. Um, no, I, I can definitely hear yeah. that. Um, well, Ajax, I think that covers everything that I wanted to, to, to kind of talk about in this interview. Do you got any, um, I don't know, any social media things, anything else you wanted to share with the listeners and stuff? I really appreciate you, your time again. I mean, we've been chatting for almost, uh, well, yeah, about an hour and a half already. I'm, we're approaching an hour and 30 minutes. I, I'm, uh, I'm seeing that on my, on my timer here. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I would really like to say thanks again for having me on. This is you know, you, my first podcast ever. It was a lot of fun to, to talk about it and share some ideas and um, answer some questions I don't usually get, get asked. You know, it's been sure trip down memory lane for sure. And um yeah, I guess just to anybody that's that's ever interested or has more questions, I'm on Instagram and Reddit, Ajax Judo Attacks. Feel free to uh, message me and, and hit me up. I'm always game to talk shop and stuff and um, network. And if anybody has any interests when COVID's over and in clinics or what my ideas on running a dojo are or anything like that, you don't have to take my ideas. You know, I'm open to criticism and, and whatever. Um, 
but uh, like I said, I like being on my soapbox talking about whatever. So I, yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It's been great uh, working with you and stuff. I'm, I'm excited to share the second part of this podcast and I hope everything's going well for you down there in Florida. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. It, yeah. Things, things are good here. I'm just, uh, I just miss training regularly and stuff. Uh, are you, are you, are you able to get in, uh, any practice at all? You just, you're just taking it easy during this time. No, I, I don't, I don't believe, I don't believe this is the time to be sharing the mat with other people. Yeah. yeah. And especially when I go take care of my dad, he's ultra high risk right now. If he of gets course. it, it's almost a guaranteed death sentence. So I really, I just, I don't, I haven't practiced since February. <laughs> yeah. No BJJ, no nothing. Yeah, it's just it's tough, but it's just not my it's not where I stand on the on the matter. Yeah. And you you do BJJ? Is that something you you? Yeah, do? yeah, yeah. I yep, I definitely I do that. I've been pretty inconsistent. I I started when I was like nineteen or twenty. Um, my coaches were a little bit old school. They a lot of coaches nowadays. You know, if you're a black belt in judo, they start you at blue belt in jujitsu. And uh, my coaches started me at, at dead even white belt um yeah so I, I worked my way up to to blue belts and a couple stripes um but like i said i've been too inconsistent to really to really have say like oh yeah i'm great bjj but um i definitely it's definitely something i've looked forward to taking more seriously after leaving judo sure because it's a different rabbit hole and i really tried to focus everything when i did bjj as a judo athlete i tried to focus it towards helping my judo you know sure um you know, axe guard doesn't really help judo rule set, but belly down armbar does. So I really try to focus on armbar, passing guard, and and different chokes. And so um, I was excited, you know, to be done with judo and be like, oh, I'm going to get into the real BJJ, the the full rabbit hole of whatever lasso, inverted axe guard, yeah. bunch of stuff. I ended up not learning because of COVID. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I'm, yeah, I do BJJ and. I miss wrestling deeply as well. I, I like, I just like grappling. There's not two ways around it. Yeah. I, I hear that. I, I hear that. Yeah. So, well, Ajax, again, I appreciate your time. Um, I know you got family to get to. I got, I got my own son that I got to pick up uh, at work in probably about 10 minutes. So, but um, Perfect, I appreciate yeah. your time and uh, we'll definitely keep in touch, whether that's through Reddit or Instagram and, or whatever the case may be. Perfect, man. Have a, have a great night. All right, so that's going to do it for my interview with Ajax Tarahara. I hope you all enjoyed that. I know I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It gave me a little bit of insight that I normally would not have had uh, being an outsider looking in when it comes to Team USA. So just, just a lot of insights. I hope uh, you know current listeners and future listeners will, will gain some, some appreciation and, and some knowledge on what it takes to be uh, not only a, a, an athlete representing Team USA in any sport, but certainly what it takes um, to represent uh, Team USA in judo and some of the challenges that are ahead of you and, and maybe some of the things that uh, prospective athletes may not realize what they're getting themselves into. So hopefully, you know, for, uh, for my current listeners and for posterity that uh, you all found that very informative. So I'll be wrapping things up shortly. I got a couple of uh, quick hitters that I wanted to get through uh, before I terminate uh, this episode. I've got, well, for, for one, I do have the after party coming up. I know some of you, 
Actually, a lot of you like that. Um, I finally got my friend Joe to come over and test the match space uh, that I built several months ago. Because I, I, re- I don't recall if I mentioned this on the podcast, but I did have Joe come over and test the suspended floating floor. Uh, with my old tatami, those puzzle tatami mats, they're about an inch and a half high uh, or in thickness, and I have a 10 by 10 area. And uh, look, quite quite frankly, despite having a floating floor and, and, you know, I felt that the construction that I did was very good, taking falls on that on my puzzle mats was very rough. I mean, it w- it was certainly better than throwing those puzzle mats on my concrete floors in the garage and then getting thrown on that. It was better than that, but um, quite to my surprise, not as much. I probably that night could only take about 30 or 40 throws. That That's about as much as I had in me. Um, but then I eventually got these Fuji mats uh, on sale, and... They're actually a little bit thinner than the puzzle mats that I had, but I had Joe come over and and he tested them. Well, we both tested them out, and my subfloor is amazing. I was concerned that maybe that this was an an issue with my subfloor, um. So I wanted to make sure that I had quality mats on top of that subfloor before I, you know, did a lot of. Th- uh, repeated throwing and I t- I gotta tell you it it's fantastic taking a fall on that if it, f- it feels like uh, my Ebor e- city it, it felt like getting thrown on those mats so to me I've got a fantastic mat space now and I would say that as far as getting thrown on top of mats or tatami it's the best mat space I've ever been on maybe apart from Ebor City Jiu Jitsu Club because uh, they they have a great mat space with an elevated floor but as far as taking falls I would put my training area alongside anybody else's training area it's it's that good I just wish it was a lot bigger but in terms of actually taking falls on it it's it's perfect I even like it better than training on gymnastics floors which I have done in the past which gymnastics uh, floors are great to fall on but for me, they're not really good for overall training, movement, and stuff. It's just the surface is not tatami, and I prefer tatami. And and lastly, um, I recently won fifty dollars for my company, um, and the reason being is that uh, I, at my company they've got this tool called Yammer, which is kind of like Twitter except for the business world. Except uh, Yammer is really more internal. Uh, but but it does work the same way uh, in in a similar way that Twitter does. You know, hashtag you you're su- you're supposed to keep your you, your text within limits and and that kind of thing. So there was a contest where you know, we share the hobbies and and a lot of people were sharing different things. I, I found out my boss is a pilot. I didn't even know that. He I saw him uh, post a video of himself flying around Tampa Bay, right around the uh, Sunshine Skyway Bridge, and. Uh, and his little Cessna or whatever it is. That shocked me. I had no idea that he was a pilot. Um, but I decided to share a video of myself doing judo. Uh, specific the one. Uh, the video of me doing Yoko Tomonagi. Which is up on my Instagram. And I also shared on Yammer. That I, that I have a podcast. And it's it's a pretty popular podcast. Within 
judo circles, and sure enough, I ended up getting money. I I I think they were I, I out of everybody in the company that shared, which was hundreds. There were going to be six winners picked, and and I got it. I got a fifty dollar gift card from Amazon, and uh, it was it was really nice. I ended up spending it on nothing really important, nothing for me anyway. And and you know the funny thing is is that. I found out I've got a listener within the company. It turns out the fellow was out in Arizona and he sent me a, a, a direct message via Microsoft Teams. And I was like, wow, I, I, he told me he was a listener. I, could, I couldn't believe it. He was a jujitsu guy, but uh, he told me he's listened to uh, you know, several episodes in the past. So I, I was very touched by that. I thought that was pretty neat. I, I didn't think anybody in my company would have uh, been a listener to this uh, hideous podcast. But there you go. So anyway, I'm just, that's going to wrap it up for me. So with that, I hope you all have a great day. I hope you all have a great rest of the week. Train hard. Stay safe out there. And until next time, I'm out. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam starts in 15 minutes all right the after party um i am gonna start off on a little bit of a down note and i mean that almost literally eddie van halen passed away uh just a couple of days ago at the age of 65 he succumbed to the cancer that he'd been battling for a number of years and that, let me tell you to me Eddie Van Halen is the greatest guitarist that has ever lived and is the greatest that ever will be. You know, I, I don't want to hear about Greg Allman. I don't want to hear about um, Jimi Hendrix. Hendrix didn't live long enough to get that title. To me, Eddie Van Halen is the greatest that ever was and ever will be. I, I, I can't stress that enough. Eddie Van Halen did things on the guitar that really... I don't think anybody could ever do. I mean, sure, there's a lot of people that that can play Eruption, for example. But who in the world could ever write Eruption uh, besides Eddie Van Halen? I don't think anybody can. And I, I tell you, you know, as a kid, I grew up in the 80s, as I as as many of you know. I And the 80s, for me, 1984 was the greatest single year for music in history, in my opinion. Some people say 1969. That's certainly a good argument. Some people say 91, uh, which I was also uh, around that time, obviously, you know, with the with the Seattle grunge alternative, you know, that scene, which I don't agree. I, I think 84 was the greatest single year of all time. And Van Halen was at the very top uh, with their album 1984, with their single jump, with Panama. I mean, there's so much that they did. And my favorite song, as you can hear in the background, is Dance the Night Away by Van Halen. But believe it or not, I'm a Sammy Hagar guy. I am not a David Lee Roth guy. I thought David Lee Roth was great, but I also thought he was a clown. And I, I you know, the early Van Halen years was about, you know, you know, girls and partying and, 
and a lot of that kind of stuff where the Sammy Hagar years was a very was a, a far more mature music. It's the best way that I could put it. And and because of that, I, I always liked Sammy Hagar as a kid. And, you know, when he became the front man for Van Halen, that just was like it was like the ultimate of ultimates. Alex Van Halen, you know, uh, Eddie's brother was certainly one of the greatest rock drummers of all time. And Michael Anthony was just a fantastic bass player and fantastic backing vocals. I mean, Van Halen was just an amazing band. I love that band. And I hate to see Eddie Van Halen pass away. Just just really awful, really sad. It it, it hurt my heart. I, I, I say that much. I, I mean, that much is true. It really did. And, you know, you know, the other day I was playing some Van Halen songs uh, for my son. We were driving somewhere and... And um, he kind of made a comment that I, I didn't really realize that, like, that kind of rock music is now considered indie. And I don't really know if it's true or not, but quite frankly, I can't think of a band similar to Van Halen, similar to Motley Crue. I mean, that kind of music isn't made anymore. And and I'm not really aware of the music scene because typically when I get in the car, I'm either listening to podcasts or I just go on YouTube and, and, and play whatever music I feel like listening to. I don't turn on the radio and listen to the top 40. I don't really know who's popular. You know, my my, my stepdaughter loves BTS, whatever they are. I, I think they're a, a, a K-pop band. I, I don't know. And I do think that some great uh, modern musicians, I, I think obviously Taylor Swift is fantastic. I'm a fan of... Um, Harry Styles, I I think he's tremendous. I mean, I think I think Harry Styles is like a modern day Elton John in 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 some ways. Just with his style, his 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 ability to sing, just he he's got it all. I think that guy is tremendous. But as far as like rock music, doesn't exist anymore. I, I mean, that's it, what my son said. I I I can't think of any band that's out there currently that. Could sell out an arena. I mean, a fo- I, they could sell out a football stadium. That's rock and roll. And quite frankly, it doesn't surprise me that rock is dead because, well, it was not politically correct. There is no safe space for rock and roll music. Can, can you imagine if "Hot for Teacher" by Van Halen came out today? I mean, those cryberry, <laughs> those crybaby Twitter warriors would have a field day. You know, talking about objectifying women, this and that. And of course they, they were. But you know what? That's what... <laughs> just a different era. It, it, it was all in good fun. I mean, nobody back then really wanted to see their teachers in, 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 in a bikini or anything like that, walking around the classroom. I mean, God, I wouldn't want to see Mrs. Gustafson in a bikini, my uh, my typing teacher or something. That would be That would be horrendous. Nobody really wanted that. It's just... It was just in good fun. I mean, this is... Gosh, I don't know what's happened these days. Everybody takes things so seriously, and it's just the 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 social media sphere has really amplified a lot of stuff. And I I I just think it would be hilarious if David Lee Roth and Van Halen came out with "Hot for Teacher" today, and that he would have to defend himself on Twitter for people trying to cancel him or something. I I mean that's what it's become and in hashtag stuff. And then he'd have to be forced to either get up and apologize or quit. And no, I'm not advocating that we objectify women or, or do things that may have been okay back in the seventies and eighties, like, like slap a woman's behind or something like that. That's completely inappropriate. And nobody's saying that, 
but we've gone way the other way of of looking to be offended. I, I think that's a big thing. Back then, if somebody offended you, you would just give it right back to them and you'd move on and ignore them. Nowadays, you just keep arguing. You have to be right and you hashtag everything and stuff. Just, just really ridiculous. So yeah, man, Eddie Van Halen, we love you. We'll miss you. And if you, if you people 30 and under don't know Van Halen, you really should listen. All right. So moving along on the TV front, have any of you guys watched Outlander? Well, if you haven't, let me be the first to tell you that if you didn't ken what I'm talking about, then you'd better ken Sasanak. Any of my Scottish listeners out there, how is my Scottish accent? So this show, um, it's kind of a weird show, but it's a good show. It's, a, it's actually a great show, but it's starting to get a little bit off the rails for me in season four. I, I haven't finished it yet, but it's kind of about this lady that manages to travel back in time to Scotland in like the, 17, the mid-1700s and... And she ends up in Scotland and, and she meets this guy and, and, you know, they get together and stuff. And it's really interesting. It's based on a lot of truth. There's a lot of history there. I'm doing a terrible job explaining the show because if I say more, um, I'm going to give it away. So it's a really great show. But let me tell you, and it's my, my longstanding complaint with most television shows, the sex scenes is just Way more than I've ever seen in any other show. Even more than Game of Thrones. And Game of Thrones started toning it down in in uh, like season three or so. Because I, I, I think maybe people realize that you're really you know missing out on valuable television by just adding these scenes in there. And we're talking about on this show Outlander. Some of these scenes are like two minutes long. And to me, if you're going to watch this uh, a, a two-minute scene like this, you may as well go online to one of those adult websites that I've heard so much about. And, and you know, the thing is with this show, it's it's almost like this show, the, the main character, or one of the main characters, Jamie Fraser, the, the guy looks like the, the, what you would see on the, on the cover of one of those trashy romance novels that women pick up in books. And pharmacies and CVSs and things like that. And I think those explicit scenes probably play out in similar fashion that you would see in one of those or read in one of those books. So if you can get past that, uh, I, I would say fast forward through most of the scenes because most of the time those scenes don't really add to the story. Maybe in, in two instances in this show that I've seen so far, it did add to the story, but most of the time it doesn't. So it's just it's just fluff and filler, and to me it's just a waste. I, I, I've made that argument so many times that nobody's going to listen to me, but I'm still going to keep making it. And uh, I also finished The Boys Season 2, which was really great. Um, I finished that uh, today as of this recording because episode 8 dropped uh, today, which is, as I'm recording this, it's it's uh, October 9th. And the way that it ended, you know, I'm not quite sure if there's going to be a season 3. I hope there is. But it ended in a way that if they decide to do another season, great. And if they don't, well, that kind of sucks. And if you haven't watched The Boys yet, all the episodes are on are on Amazon Prime if you have a Prime subscription. What Prime did this time around, I think I complained about it the last time or or, or my last episode, is that 
they release the episodes once a week, and I, I just think that's ridiculous. I, I can't stand it when they do that. It, it made sense when they did it for Disney Plus because you needed to hook people uh, with The Mandalorian. But you don't need to do something like this for, for Amazon Prime subscribers. It, it serves no purpose. And I would be equally pissed if Netflix decided to do the same thing. That, that would just be awful. Now, on the video game front, I recently purchased a game called The Outer Worlds. And it's kind of cool. It's, it's, uh, for those of you who like Skyrim, and if you liked uh, Fallout 4, and if you liked uh, the Bioshock series... You would like this game. It's It's got a little bit of all three, um, but it doesn't do all three as well as those individual games did. But it's it's fun. I'm enjoying it. I haven't finished the game. I'm not even close. I did finally finish Red Dead Redemption 2, which was just a marvelous game. Um, the, the, the only thing that I don't like about, uh, some of these video games, and this was a, this, this is already an, an issue. It's not a bad problem, but it's a problem in the outer worlds. It was a problem in, in, uh, in Red Dead Redemption 2. It was also kind of a problem in Skyrim. The economy of these games, like you start off really poor and, and it's hard to make money. And then as you progress in the game, you have a ton of money. You have more money than you know what to do with. And I thought that was really problematic in Red Dead Redemption 2 because, you know, all this time you have uh, Dutch with his master plan of, of wanting to take the take the gang to Tahiti. And he's like, if we just do one more job, we'll have $1,000. We can go to Tahiti. And I'm thinking to myself... Or if I was Arthur, I'd be thinking to myself, Dutch, I got $8,725 in my pocket. We don't need to do the job. We can go to Tahiti right now. Well, that never happened in the game. But but I just wanted to give Dutch the money that we could just go to Tahiti and, and, and sip Mai Tais and stuff. But it didn't happen. So that's probably the only drawback in a lot of these type of uh, story-driven games that have a currency, you you end up making so much money that that the, the currency just becomes irrelevant. In Grand Theft Auto, it wasn't a problem because you, you wanted to make as much money as possible so you could buy, you know, guns and, and cars and airplanes and things like that. But that's it. I'm out.